It was um, 15 years ago, next month, that I walked into this sanctuary for the first time, my wife and I. We were right back there in the last row. And uh, nobody other than the board of trustees at that point had any clue uh, who we were. It was blissful anonymity. (laughs) And we were just checking the place out. We're just trying to sense, could we imagine God calling us to this family? And um, like some of you are in that zone right this moment. You're just checking this place out. You're wondering, could I imagine being here, part of this family. And I remember we were taking stock, are the people friendly, are they reaching out, are they, is there love here in this, in this body? And, and we found people loving us and encouraging us, even though they didn't even know our names yet. Remember that because somebody out here might be your next senior pastor. Um, <laughs> But what I uh, also remember was Dr. DeKreiter in the pulpit that day, our founding pastor. And uh, I remember that lion-esque mane of white hair he had. I had no idea at the time that went with the job. Uh, (laughs) But what I recall most uh, deeply from that experience was his message that day. First message I ever heard at Christ Church of Oak Brook. And his text was a single verse from Deuteronomy chapter 29 and and verse 29. I want to read that uh, uh, to you this morning. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of of this law. I want to think with you this morning about both the revealed things and the secret things of God. Dr. Kreider said on that particular day that God reveals to us certain things in order to guide us and our children into the way of his kingdom. He gives us handles, he gives us clues, guidelines, laws to enable us to find our way onto the pathway of life as he intends it. And like the manna that he gave to the children of Israel that just came down each day, or like the daily bread that Jesus called us to pray for, God usually gives us no more than we need. He gives us enough. He provides for us enough truth and grace. It is, as Dr. Kreider so frequently said, sufficient for all of our needs today. But Dr. Kreider also said that there are these secret things that belong to the Lord our God alone. God, he said, and this is the quotation that stuck with me all these years, God has a right to his secrets. He has a right to his secrets. He has a reason for the things he does not reveal to us. And if we will not grant God his secrecy, Dr. Kreider suggested, then maybe we were not willing to grant him that he is God. 
I hope you will keep this in mind as I try to answer today or at least address some of the questions that some of you still have about the subject of the afterlife because I've been collecting them over these weeks. And I want to think about the subject with you one more time this morning and and invite you to keep in mind that God has told us the things we most need to know. Among the things revealed in his word is the assurance that there is life after death, that there is a real heaven It's not a projection. It's not just a wish. There's a real heaven and there is a real hell. And these dimensions of existence are even now seeking to make claims upon us. Even now seeking to draw us into their way. The basic orientation of our life today, Jesus says. The orientation or the attitude of our life, our heart, mind, soul, and strength towards God and towards other people now determines not just the direction and character of our life today, but our destination in the life after. And like no other person in history, Jesus shows us the way to to God and his kingdom. He shows us the truth about that kingdom These are not secret things. This is not kept a secret from us. But what still puzzles a lot of people are questions like these. If somebody isn't a Christian, but they are a very good person, won't they still go to heaven? Or, or if one of my friends or my family members were, were baptized or they went through the whole confirmation deal and they, they used to go to church, but, you know, life got complicated. They moved away. They, you know, patterns changed. They're, they're just sort of not into that anymore. They've wandered away for a while, maybe for a long time. Are they going to hell? Or if someone has confessed Christ at some point, you know, said, Lord, I I give my life to you. I ask the forgiveness of my sins. But then messed up really badly and continually and turned away from God effectively for a whole season. Can they lose their salvation? Will they they lose it? Have you ever wondered any of these things? All of these questions, I'm convinced, are subsets of an even bigger one. And the bigger one is this. How do we know who's in and who's out? We want to know. Inquiring minds would like to know. So we can have some predictability, some control, some assurance about these things. Isn't that right? 
But the only way to actually approach an understanding of these topics is to pose an even more important question, and that question is, who is God? Who is God? Who do we believe God is? What's been revealed to us about him? That is, of course, one of the revealed things, what God is like. The Bible says that God is love and that those who live in love and live, therefore live in him and he in them is what the Apostle John wrote. The scriptures show us that God is patient and kind. He is stunningly hopeful and persevering in his faithful pursuit of people who have lost his way. Okay, that we see that all through the stories of the Bible. God's word assures us that he holds people accountable for no more than they have had the chance to know him. Okay, they're not held responsible for more than they've actually had an opportunity to know him. Hebrews 11, a great chapter for your reading this afternoon, reveals that God welcomes some people... He welcomes into his heart and home some people who are living by faith toward him and toward his heavenly kingdom, the book of Hebrews says, the heavenly country, even though they don't yet know the name of Jesus. Hebrews 11 is clear on this. The Bible says God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth. In his bold affirmation of the faith of the Roman centurion and in his celebration of the sacrificial service of an outcast woman, Jesus implies there are some people who are walking by his way. There are some people who are living by his truth who don't yet use Christian terminology or confess the name of Christ explicitly. I, for one, I told you I moved here 15 years ago. I, for one, drove for years eastbound from here on Route 290 before I ever understood that that road was what people called the Eisenhower Expressway. I would hear people talking about traffic on the Eisenhower, and I, was, I had no idea what they were talking about. But my ignorance of the local language did not prevent me from getting to Chicago on that road. You get this? We ought to be very careful before we say that somebody is in or they are out because they use these particular words or they offer this particular prayer, or they spend their Sundays in this particular building. In 1 Samuel 16, in verse 7, God himself declares, man looks at the outward appearance, at the language, at the dress, at the, you know, the customs. Man looks at that stuff. But what does God look at? What does he look at? He looks at the heart. He looks at the orientation of the heart. 
But as I discovered, as I was finding my way around this area, not every road goes to Chicago. And if you're not really careful, you can get extremely mixed up, and you find yourself in Des Moines before you know it. (laughs) Nothing wrong with Des Moines. (laughs) I don't want letters. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus is clear in saying that not every road leads to the kingdom of heaven. Okay? No matter how sincerely driven on it, no matter how many people may be on it, not every road goes to heaven, to his kingdom. In fact, Jesus said there are wide and well-traveled roads that lead to destruction. He suggests that every person is spending their life, in a sense, choosing their road. They're becoming one of two different kinds of people. Either we are becoming the kind of person who is at home in a world where God is at the center and where giving or grace is just the way of things there and where his will is increasingly done in all things. Either that's the sort of the the direction for us or else we are becoming the kind of person who insists that self be the center, that getting or earning is the way. I got to earn it. I got to get it. You do too. You got to earn my love. You got to earn my respect. You got to... And where increasingly my passion is to see my will get done. I am on that road or I'm on that road, increasingly choosing my way through life. The first way, the first way leads to the kingdom of heaven. The second way leads someplace else, beyond Des Moines. Let me stress that those who are on that first way don't need to be worried about losing their salvation because they hit bumps in the road that kick up doubts, that sort of jar them into bad patterns in, in some way. They, they, they don't need to, to think they're going to lose their salvation because they wander out of the center lane for a season. They don't need to worry about losing their salvation because they happen to be traveling in a car that's still pretty dirty and dented and needs a lot of work. If you listen to my voice, says Jesus, in John's gospel, if your heart is turned toward the way of the kingdom of heaven, then be assured that no one can snatch you out of my hand. No one. I'm going to get you to the heavenly city. I'm going to get you there. But if you or somebody you know is basically oriented toward that second way, then a change of course is required. And I'm just not going to be dancing around that. 
I did, would not be an act of love. You see, it is not about how many times you've been in church or haven't sat in a church. It, it, it is not about whether you've regularly taken communion or not or mouthed the doctrinally correct prayers and creeds. It's not about whether you dropped into the plate or how much you put into the plate or whether you are a generally better gal or guy than somebody else that you could probably name. It is all about whether you worship God at the center, whether you know that you and everybody else is desperately need in need of the grace that God lavishes to us supremely upon the cross. It is whether you are willing to seek first a kingdom, even if you're doing this imperfectly, but your purpose in life is to seek a kingdom where God's will is done. This is what the cross of Christ is all about. This is what the kingdom of heaven is all about. God at the center. Grace given. His will being done. None of us can presume to say who's in and who's out. We we measure ourselves against the kingdom criteria. That's a healthy practice. But none of us can presume to say who's in or out at the end. That's one of the secret things. Okay? That Bible makes that clear. That's one of the secret things known only to God. In fact, the book of Revelation says in the text you see overhead that only Jesus is worthy to unseal the scroll, to read out the names in the book of life in which are recorded, at least in a poetic sense, every person that God knows has turned their heart towards him, has received his grace, has entered into the way of the kingdom. But this much the book also reveals. The dead will be judged according to what they had done, according to the way they've chosen. Here's where a lot of people have got more questions. I've I've heard a number of these recently. Somebody asked me this past week, does, does what we've done on this earth, I mean, I understand that entering into the kingdom is, is, is not fundamentally about what I do. It's about what God has done in Jesus. But, but does what I do on this earth change the particular place that we end up occupying in heaven? Are there different levels or layers to heaven? And I know where that comes from because lots of religious traditions have speculated on on this. Within Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Gnosticism, and several other isms, there are these theories that have arisen that there are actually seven heavens. You've heard of the television program, right? What's it called? Seventh heaven. Seven being this number of spiritual perfection. The more perfect you become on the earth, the theory goes, the higher up in the, num- in the level of heavens you get to go in the afterlife. Classical Mormonism holds that there are three different kinds of heavens. 
or worlds that the faithful uh, get to inhabit uh, based on, on, on life here. Uh, they're sort of like, and this is my language, not Mormonisms, it's sort of like economy, business, and first class. And, and, and you get to fly in one of those different levels based on the number of moral points you've racked up. Your point total determines your final seating. It's very human, isn't it? What does the Bible actually say about all this? Well, in Ephesians 2, St. Paul makes it clear that it is by God's grace and not by works that we are saved from the penalty of sin. We don't get forgiveness from God or a chance to go to the heaven that is after this life because we're more perfect than somebody else or because we've piled up more moral mileage points. It is the gift of God, Paul says. It is the gift of God. But in the same passage, Paul goes on to underline that we've been redeemed by Jesus to do good works. We've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works. God wants to see us doing good deeds. He wants to see this. Why? Because we were made for it, for good. Because it glorifies his name and draws other people to him. Because it blesses people, the people he loves, as we do these good deeds. In the new heaven on earth that Christ will establish when he returns, there will still be good works to be done. There's going to be the work of restoring this creation to, to its, its full glory to, to be done. Uh, the book of Revelation pictures God's servants as reigning in this new world. And there's some suggestion there that the level of responsibility that is given to people at that point will be according to what they have done in this life. This idea is actually amplified by Jesus himself in his parable of the, uh, the talents, Matthew 25. The suggestion in that parable is that those who are faithful with what they've been given in this life, entrusted with in this life, those who have been really faithful in investing it according to the way of the kingdom, will be put in charge of many things in the afterlife. Now, are you getting how differently this works from the seventh heaven, first class cabin mentality. It's really crucial you get the difference on this. Our good deeds on earth don't get us into heaven. I just got to underline that three times. I don't care if you're Mother Teresa, it doesn't get you in. It's not the good deeds. It's whether your heart is open to him. (laughs) Because that's what heaven's about, him. It's whether you know you need him. You know you need his grace. You know you can't do it for yourself. Our good works on earth also don't entitle us to a comfier seat or a more luxuriously appointed hotel room in heaven. 
where we get waited on hand and foot. Heaven is not a frequent flyer hotel guest program. It's not like that. Get that out of our heads. Our faithfulness to the ways of the kingdom of heaven here simply prepares us for a greater share in the master's work there. The reward is greater responsibility. (laughs) That's the reward. It's a chance to share in the master's happiness, the joy that God has in serving and blessing and creating and renewing things. We are privileged in heaven if we've been faithful here. We're privileged with more opportunity, more responsibility in doing that, those works of service. Are there particular levels to this kind of happiness? Is there, is in this sense, a seventh heaven of joy for those who's, who are abandoned to the servant-heartedness of God? Is, is that possible? Well, the Bible does not tell us. I wouldn't worry about it if I were you. It is one of the secret things. Serve him here. Be faithful here. Let me close by by hitting one final question, and and it is one that I, I know disturbs many of us. How could heaven ever feel heavenly to me if somebody that I love is not by my side? What if I get there and I find out that that particular family member or friend who means so much to me isn't there? What if it turns out that all dogs or cats or pet turtles don't go to heaven? What if I'm there with my current spouse and my first husband or wife who died walks up to us? How is heaven going to feel heavenly if it's this complicated? (laughs) You know, if maybe my pet isn't there or maybe my person I love isn't, how could that feel heavenly to be there under those conditions? I think that, that here again we are entering the realm of the secret things. Okay? Uh, We just, this is the closest I can get to it. We do not yet understand how imprisoned we are in time and space, how locked in we are uh, to a frame of reference that makes it almost impossible for us to understand what eternity is like. We have these temporal experiences of relationship. Uh, of a human version of what the word love really means. You know, we, we have these understandings, but this predisposes us to thinking that there could be no real happiness if these things didn't continue like they're working now, maybe larger and more intense, um, or, or, or if the problems we see weren't resolved the way we think they should be now, we just assume it, it couldn't be heavenly. 
But as C.S. Lewis describes in his magnificent book, and again, I'll say it, please read this book this summer if you haven't read it. It's just 128 pages. It'll be worth your time. As he describes in this extraordinary book, The Great Divorce, all of these constructs that we live within, this reality around us here, are but the shadow lands of the glory that awaits us there. And one day, and this is the big idea, one day, you will gasp and shudder before the glory of who he is when you finally and fully see all of God, the Bible promises. And the absolute love that he is will fill you up to overflowing and recondition how you look at and respond to everything in your environment. You will know why he had to let certain people go their way. You'll get it. It will not be a disturbing thing to you any longer. You will understand in the depths of your being why the relationships in heaven are as they are. And your only thought may be, boy, I wish we could have done that back there. And all of the agonies and all of the atrocities of this life will be bathed backward in time by the brilliant light of God's goodness, or as J.R. Tolkien says in The Return of the King, everything sad is going to come untrue. when time and space themselves are no more. For, as it is written in the scriptures, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. I think my faithful predecessor was really wise when he said, God has a right to his secrets. We must remember that he keeps them, not because they are so fearful, but because they are so wonderful. Our minds could not contain them now. We don't need to know everything here. What we most need to know are the revealed things. There is a God who is really God. And Jesus shows us that he is also really good. And he invites you and he invites me and he invites everyone to walk in the way, the truth, and the life of his kingdom because there is no more blessed way. There just is not. And he commissions 
us, all of us, every disciple, to invite other people, as many as we can, onto the way. Don't put that off, that inviting. It's a sign that maybe the self is at the center. If you're not inviting, don't put it off. Because the heavenly realm and the alternative realm begins right now, here. And it stretches out. Lub-dub. Lub-dub. Into the afterlife. Let's go there together and bring as many people with us as we possibly can. Amen.